0: This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies.
1: I, 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 I remember I was teaving, little gums bleeding. Friday evening, it
0: was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about and now I'm ready for the world. Try and sink my teeth in Hey there, welcome to episode 155 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Sarah Thompson, a certified body trust provider, recovery coach, and consultant who also used to do some administrative work for me and is an all-around awesome human. We talked about the barriers she faced to getting an eating disorder diagnosis, the ways in which diet culture has infiltrated naturopathic and Chinese medicine, the lack of health at every size education in healthcare programs in general, weight bias in the quote-unquote food addiction Theory and so much more. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you very shortly. But first, I just have a quick announcement about our upcoming schedule. Just to let you know, in a few weeks, I'm actually going to be going on my honeymoon. And I was trying to get ready for that really far ahead so that I could have the podcast be uninterrupted while I was away. But a bunch of things just got in the way and, and the timing just didn't work out. So instead, we'll be rerunning a couple of our most loved episodes from the archives while I'm gone, which means you can catch up on episodes you missed or go back to old favorites and get a refresher on all the goodness. So that's just an early heads up. We still have a new episode next week. Uh, And then the week after we'll have reruns for a couple weeks. And then we'll be back again in June with more new episodes. So that is the announcement, and now I will answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Fia, who writes, Hi, Christy. Thank you for creating such an amazing platform. Thankfully, I've recovered from anorexia and bulimia about 10 years ago, but recently I have found myself challenged by some old thought patterns in new ways. There are times I wonder if I'm veering towards orthorexia, but I think I'm actually overeating, but with quote-unquote healthy foods, such as vegetables and fruits. I don't eat meat and eat very wholesome foods, very rarely processed foods or sugar." However, I find myself feeling not satiated a lot of the time and then I binge eat carrots or apples or something of that ilk and will keep eating even though I might be full. It's almost as though I'm afraid of feeling deprived again. I feel like I might have lost touch with my intuition around eating after years of restriction. Is that a common issue? Many thanks. So thanks, Fia, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice, and I'm not diagnosing anything in these answers. So first of all, I want to send a huge amount of compassion your way. I know that that is really a struggle. And it sounds like you've gone through a lot in your relationship with food. And I just want to say it takes a lot to recover from anorexia and bulimia. So that is awesome that you've been able to recover from those. You know, in terms of your question, I would say it definitely sounds like you're struggling with some orthorexic behaviors now. You know, again, this is not meant as a diagnosis or substitute for medical advice. So you'll need to talk to a mental health professional about it. But, you know, it really sounds like orthorexia to me. It sounds like your intuition that in thinking that you might have, have orthorexia is right on. Because anytime I've seen people who are binging on fruits or vegetables, there's always been some restrictive orthorexic thinking going on. Like anyone I've worked with who's had that behavior, it's because of orthorexia. Because people are not actually really designed or driven to binge on fruits or vegetables. It's usually because you've deprived yourself and cut off other avenues of foods that you could be eating. So I would really explore what's going on there for you, like why you've decided to not eat processed foods or sugar very often, um, and try to challenge your thinking on that and open up to those foods. I actually, you know, in the wording of your question, you said that you think you might be afraid of feeling deprived again. I definitely don't think it's an issue of being afraid of feeling deprived. I think you probably are feeling deprived again, because it sounds like you're doing some kind of austere things in your eating, kind of eating in a way that's pretty rigid. And so you probably are are feeling deprived and needing some more variety, needing some more flexibility in your eating. Similarly, I don't think you've necessarily lost touch with your intuition around eating. It seems like your intuition is actually really telling you something. I think your intuition is telling you that your strict way of eating isn't working and that you need more satisfying foods. And, you know, I always say like sometimes people answer their own questions in the question, like the answer is contained within you already. You already sort of know what you need. And I really see that in your question because you said, you know, you think you're not feeling very satiated. And I think that is probably very true. So what would it feel like to add things that are more satisfying, like, you know, cookies and chips and other sweets and satisfying snacks? Or what about adding more fun foods at meals to keep you satisfied and satiated, like having chips on the side of your sandwich at lunch or something like that, you know, making sure that you have, Filling, satisfying foods in addition to the things you're already eating. And also you mentioned that you're not eating meat. And I would really wonder what that decision is about for you. I'd really explore that because some people make that choice out of orthorexic ideas about health. And that is just going to feed and foster the orthorexic thinking and the orthorexic behaviors. Of course, some people make that choice to not eat meat out of animal rights reasons or environmental reasons, and they can be vegetarian and be perfectly satisfied. And if it's for ethical reasons only, then it wouldn't necessarily be playing into your eating disordered thinking. But if there are thoughts of weight loss or health in there, even a little bit, you know, even as a secondary or tertiary motivation, I'd really challenge you to make peace with meat and fully recover from your orthorexia first before you make any choices for environmental or animal rights reasons. Because, you know, those reasons are really valid. A lot of people have those as part of their ethical decision making around food. But if it's tied up with disordered thinking, if it's tied up with weight concerns or orthorexic concerns about purity, it's going to be really hard for you to fully recover from that eating disorder. And in fact, there is research on people with eating disorders showing that those who have motivations around weight related to vegetarianism or veganism are less likely to recover and more likely to relapse from their eating disorders than people whose motivations are just ethical. So I think that's really something to consider. You know, I think it might be time to consider challenging yourself to bring meat back into your life, especially if you find the vegetarianism is driven primarily by worries about health or weight. And if it's completely and totally an ethical decision with no overlap with your eating disorder, which I would say is pretty rare. And, you know, I have seen some people for whom that's the case, but it it definitely is a rare case. But if that is the case for you, how can you create more satisfying vegetarian meals and what other animal proteins, you know, if it's just not eating meat, you could still be eating eggs or cheese or whatever. Right. Um, What other animal proteins Or plant proteins can you bring in along with grains and starches and vegetables and fat and all the stuff that helps you build satisfying meals. Like, it sounds like you just really need more satisfaction. You really need more pleasure, probably both in meals and in snacks. And then finally, I'm giving suggestions here of things you can do to challenge yourself and break through the orthorexia rules. But if you find that you do those challenges and you're really panicking, or it's terrifying to you to even think about challenging those rules, or if you have a really intense mental reaction afterwards, then I'd recommend reaching out to a health at every size um, and eating disorder-informed therapist and dietitian Because you might need to work with a treatment team for a while to break down these rules and get yourself back into a solid place of recovery orthorexia is a really nuanced and kind of sneaky form of eating disorder that likes to get in there. And it's, you know, if you've recovered from anorexia and bulimia, you've probably experienced an eating disorder as being very severe, very austere. You have sort of behaviors you can look back on and say, yes, that those were like clearly part of my eating disorder. Orthorexia is sneakier. Orthorexia kind of shape shifts and it doesn't present itself as an eating disorder per se. But one of the clues to me that it is present is when people say that they're binging on and fruits and vegetables. So I would really explore that with a treatment team. I would really try to you know, find a team that gets eating disorders and can understand your history and where you're coming from and also gets orthorexia and thinks about food and body size in a neutral, weight-inclusive way. So you could reach back out to the same treatment team that you were working with, perhaps if you had an outpatient treatment team that you liked for the anorexia and bulimia. Or you can go to hazecommunity.com, H-A-E-S community.com, or intuitiveeating.org to search for dietitians and therapists who get intuitive eating and health at every size. Um, and you can also try the National Eating Disorders Association hotline. Just go to nationaleatingdisorders.org and you'll see the treatment finder there. Um, if you call the hotline, they might be able to help connect you with someone who has a specialization in treating orthorexia and practicing from a weight-neutral, health-at-every-size standpoint. So that would be my recommendation. It sounds like you're definitely struggling in your relationship with food and there's a lot of orthorexic tendencies going on there and you absolutely deserve to get the help you need and you don't have to live with this kind of rigidity around food. You're allowed to eat processed foods. You're allowed to eat fun foods. Processed quote unquote foods get a really bad rap in diet culture under the new guys that diet culture has taken in this day and age, which I call the wellness diet. But in fact, processed foods are nothing to be afraid of. Everything is actually processed to some degree. Every single thing we eat, even those carrots and apples that you say you're binging on. So, you know, I would encourage you to stop demonizing processed food and really look at opening up to foods that, you know, will give you more satisfaction and pleasure throughout the day so that you don't end up feeling like you're empty and you're seeking something more for satisfaction. So I hope that helps. Um, and if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com questions. That's christyharrison.com questions, and you can submit your question there. Then, if you want a whole library of answers from me to help you master intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want, have me answer it the following month, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has 13 modules of content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating in depth and helping troubleshoot and demystify some of the places where people tend to get stuck. It also has this exclusive monthly Q&A podcast that I mentioned, which has answers to hundreds of members' questions already. And when you join the course, you can ask me your questions and have me answer them in the following month's Q&A. So members really love the Q&As. They've told me that it helps to make the course feel really personal and clear and very individualized, like they're getting private coaching. And another thing members really love is our private Facebook group, which is exclusively for course participants. And it's full of such amazing, wonderful people. I just love seeing the support there every day. It's so great. And people are really there for each other on their way to intuitive eating. And, you know, having a community of people who gets it and can support you is no easy task in this diet culture society. So finding that group and plugging in to get support is so key for so many people's uh, ability to embrace intuitive eating and put it into practice in their lives. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. We're brought to you today by Casper Mattress. Y'all know my husband and I love our Casper Mattress, and sleep is really so important to me. Like, I would sleep for just... 12 hours a day if I could. On weekends, I do that. Actually, whenever I can, I just don't set an alarm and I easily spend 12 hours in bed. And it's amazing. Uh, And our bed is just so cool and comfortable. And I never wake up in a sweat or anything because Casper actually uh, helps regulate your body temperature so that you sleep cool throughout the night. And it has three mattress models, the original Casper, which is the one I have, the Wave and the Essential, which are like Deluxo versions. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your body's natural curves. And it's actually delivered right to your door with free shipping and free returns to the US and Canada. Plus, you can be sure that you're gonna love it because you get a hundred night free sleep on it trial. So you can sleep on it for 100 nights and if it's not for you, send it back for free. no questions asked. After all, you spend one third of your life sleeping, so you really should be comfortable. You can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash psych and using the offer code psych at checkout that's casper.com slash psych and use the offer code psych for $50 off your mattress purchase terms and conditions apply. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Sarah Thompson. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up.
1: My relationship with food growing up. The easiest way to describe it is stressful. I don't really remember much before I was nine, and so all the memories that I do have are basically of knowing that I shouldn't eat too much food. Seconds weren't really for me. Those were for my dad and my brothers, and that always irritated me because I always thought just because I'm a girl doesn't mean I can't
0: eat as much. Do you think it was like a sexist thing that girls weren't allowed to have more food in your family?
1: Yeah, and I think that, like, the idea was that they were supposed to be bigger. Like, I don't know. You know, my dad was tall, my brothers are both taller than me, and my mom and my sister were shorter and smaller. Except for my mom wasn't smaller when I was a kid. She was basically in a larger body my whole life until I was probably, like, 20 it was stressful. Like, I always felt like I was bigger than everyone else that was my age. I was teased a lot about my size. Even though looking back at pictures, it seems like I was a rather normal size for a kid. And I don't want to say that to say that being larger isn't normal.
0: But just that you were sort of more average sized when you're yeah. getting that kind of feedback.
1: Yeah. So I knew that that was connected to what I ate. At least that's what I was told, I guess, that if I ate less, then my body wouldn't be so big. And then I wouldn't have to deal with everybody talking about
0: my weight. It mm, sounds painful. It was. Yeah. And so where did it go from there? Then how did your relationship with food change as a result of people saying that to you?
1: I remember dieting. I feel like the first time that I dieted was probably like age nine or 10. I mean, it could have been later than that, but I don't exactly remember. I knew my mom was always on diets. So I feel like it just kind of ended up that I did them with her. I don't know if that was encouraged or pushed, but I was, it was definitely not discouraged at all. When talking about this, I really like to acknowledge that, you know, that happened before I was able to give consent you know, like fully informed consent, like I would as if I were an adult.
0: Yeah, that's huge to point out.
1: Yeah. So it probably also resulted in me binging and hiding food and lying about food that I ate because certain things would be hidden, like to be saved for our lunches for school. And I think part of that was out of like the need to save money and make sure that we had the food when we needed it. And partly it was like snack type food that's like, kind, like it was kind of viewed as a treat when I was a kid, and of course I wanted it, and so there were a lot of times that I lied about eating food that I wasn't supposed to have, and I felt really guilty about that for a long time. Thankfully, I don't feel guilty about that anymore.
0: It makes so much sense given that you were being pressured about your size and told that you weren't allowed to eat certain foods. I think it's completely natural to hide and sneak food in that situation. Right.
1: Yes. I didn't think that until later in life. Like I really just thought that I was being a bad kid.
0: Yeah. Like it was your secret shame that you were bad. Something was wrong with you. Not that something was wrong with the situation. Right.
1: I remember doing Weight Watchers. That was one of the diets that my mom did. And I don't remember going to meetings with her. It could have happened and I just don't remember it. But I remembered like reading her books and seeing how everything was counted. And I very vividly remember her book with the little shoes that have the wing, like these stickers that you would get for like all of your milestones. So that kind of took me into high school. And I basically looked at Weight Watchers as, air quotes, a healthy eating plan. And so I did that, I want to say, for like my sophomore year of high school. And I lost weight. And I also was exercising. I would go to our local natatorium and exercise. And then life got really hard.
0: What were people's responses when you lost weight? What was the feedback you got?
1: Oh, it was absolutely all positive. Every bit of it. Everyone noticed. Everyone commented. And I still wasn't the average size of most of the people at my school. It was definitely not considered negative that I had lost so much weight. Like nobody was worried about if I was eating enough food. Right.
0: How did that affect your, you know, self-esteem and self-image? Did you, were you sort of seduced by those compliments? And did it feel like... That was, you know, that you had to like continue this losing weight sort of trajectory in order to keep getting those kinds of compliments.
1: Yes, definitely. And it was also kind of a double edged sword because I did not know how to handle any positive attention about my body or like dealing with, okay, so what did you think about my body before? If that's what you're saying to me now, or like all of a sudden, I was curvy in places that I wasn't before. Like I had more of a defined like feminine type body. And so dealing with attention around that, you know, it was very uncomfortable. It was this weird, yay, people like my body. And also like, how can I hide? (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't, this is really uncomfortable. But I also want you to say that I look good. Like it was kind of like a mind
0: fuck. Yeah. It must have been, right? Cuz the you had gotten this message before that your body was wrong or that you had to shrink it. And then suddenly now there's all this positive feedback for your body and it sounds like objectification as well. That's always uncomfortable to navigate, but then on top of that there's the sort of history that you you hadn't really experienced that type of positive feedback before. So it's like all new, all weird, probably pretty scary.
1: Yeah. Between like my sophomore and junior year in high school, I had some traumatic stuff happen. I think it was a combination of not really being able to sustain the diet along with the stress and the trauma And my junior year of high school was when I feel like I crossed that line from dieting to eating disorder um, or disordered eating to eating disorder. So I lost more weight. I was not eating and I was exercising. I can't say I wasn't eating. I was eating very, very little. And, you know, I attempted to talk to leaders in my youth group, because I went to church at the time, I was heavily involved with my church. And I attempted to talk to leaders in my youth group about it. And I don't know if this was actually the case. But what I remember and what I remember feeling was that they didn't have any idea how to handle it. And it was too much. So I felt them pull away. And it felt like it wasn't safe to talk to anyone about it. I was not very good at sustaining eating very little food. So after several several months, I started um, purging, using exercise even more as a way to try and control my weight and deal with life. Like, it's definitely a coping mechanism. I'd say that that, I mean, that probably that pattern continued intensely for probably at least a year off and on. I think it would ebb and flow because it was really hard to hide and it was really hard to lie all the time about what I was eating or when I was eating or how much I was eating or, you know, being able, like, the amount of time that it took up to think about how to do everything without anyone knowing was a lot
0: of time. Yeah, that's got to be your whole... Mental capacity just devoted to that. And it sounds like your parents were concerned or they would have noticed if you had been obvious about it.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I wonder how much they knew. My mom was always really good about knowing (laughs) stuff, even if I didn't want her to. But then, you know, there's also sometimes where I think you just don't want to think that that's what's happening for your kid um, or you don't know how to deal with it. Or what to do about it. I did end up having therapy after the traumatic stuff happened. I don't remember it being super helpful other than I got to talk to somebody for an hour.
0: And did you talk about your eating issues at all in that therapy or no?
1: I don't really remember. If I did, I think that like my weight was still an issue. And... I think other than that, I kind of vaguely just remember complaining about my family a lot.
0: (laughs) So it sounds like it didn't really do much to address that and maybe sort of loosely address the trauma, but not even in a way that felt very helpful. No. So it kind of makes sense that you would need some coping mechanisms and that the eating disorder ramped up at that point and sort of became another way to cope, even though it's you know, damaging coping mechanisms. It's kind of like the best you had at the time.
1: And I remember, you know, wanting to be a certain weight for my senior pictures. And then by the time I graduated, I could barely fit in my cap and gown. That was such a shame spiral for me. And I remember my mom complaining because she never got a whole picture of me in my cap and gown because I took it off so quickly after the ceremony was over because it was so uncomfortable and tight. And by that time I, I would say that I was mostly just going back and forth between restricting and binging and maybe sometimes purging. Yeah. And then my first semester of college, I started going to Overears Anonymous because I had no idea what else to do with myself because it was, it was just such a terrible cycle and I did not like, I didn't like it. It was not fun and it was free.
0: Yeah. That's rare to have a free resource like that. Right. You know, now we know how unhelpful it can be, but I think at the time, I mean, I definitely considered it myself too when I was restricting and binging because it was one of the first things that came up when you Google, like I can't stop overeating or whatever.
1: Yeah. I, I actually didn't. So that was when I was 18. I went for a couple of years pretty hardcore and involved and then left for about two, two and a half years and then went back and didn't leave until I was 33. It was a huge part of my life and there were some things that were extremely helpful about it. I really appreciated the community. I really appreciated being with other people that understood the way that I was with food. It was nice that it wasn't stigmatized.
0: Yeah, that's probably a huge difference from your previous experience of trying to reach out about it.
1: Yeah. And then it got to the point where it felt extremely uncomfortable to go. They had changed the primary purpose or the definition of abstinence. I forget which it is. I get it confused now that it's been a while since I haven't gone. But they changed it to include um, working towards a healthy body weight. And it was no longer just about not compulsively overeating. Or whatever disordered eating patterns that you had. That was a big shift for me in uh, using OA. Because it really highlighted that people's focus was not just about food, but it was also really about weight.
0: Yeah. And how did that work out to like, I mean, did you not buy it from the start? Were you like, I'm not going to go down that road because I know what trying to lose weight does to me, or did you kind of start doing it and then find Mm -hmm. that it was having negative repercussions?
1: Well, until I officially quit away, I feel like for the most part, I was buying into it. I did buy into the idea that recovery equaled weight loss. And because we talked about it as in like binging or compulsive overeating, you know, I also never, it really never clicked for me that I had an eating disorder until after I stopped having one. It was never diagnosed. Nobody ever, a doctor, a therapist, nobody ever said that that's what was wrong. It was not the way that OA talked about food. It was definitely more of a food addiction lens. And so it wasn't until I decided to leave that I really allowed for the space that recovery doesn't equal weight loss and that I could somehow eat without worrying about weight loss. That was a pretty radical idea.
0: Yeah, that's completely radical coming from that perspective, right? I mean, it's it's radical in our culture, which is diet culture for so many reasons, because I think anyone in a larger body is just conditioned to feel like they should be pursuing weight loss always, you know, people who are not in larger bodies are conditioned to think that too. And so it's, you know, it's hard to let go of that idea and just acknowledge that, you know, healing your relationship with food and your eating has nothing to do with the size of your body. That's a big jump. Absolutely. And
1: like, take that further and that the size of your body doesn't have to do with your health. There was a part of me that wanted to believe that, but I always bought into the idea that because I was fat, I had, that meant that I had to be unhealthy. Literally, I spent years going to doctors, including naturopathic doctors and a couple of acupuncturists, to find out what was wrong with my body so that I could lose weight. Why can't my body lose weight? There has to be something wrong with it. But yet, my blood work, everything else says that I'm healthy. But yet I still had this belief that, of course, I was unhealthy because of my size.
0: Right. That's totally baked into diet culture. So, of course, you would believe that, I think. It's it's really hard to detach that because you sort of are conditioned to believe that your size is a symbol that there's something wrong, even if everything else seems perfectly okay.
1: Right. And if you are in a larger body, then you must also be overeating. I think I also held that belief because so often when I stopped overeating and was abstinent, according to OA, I would lose weight. But of course I would lose weight because I was restricting.
0: Right. Abstinence in OA's terms that equals diet. It's a restriction. We've talked about on the podcast before. There's a huge difference between the food addiction theory, which is not backed up by science and is not true. Like you're not actually addicted to food and being quote unquote abstinent from particular foods is not the way to treat eating issues and disordered eating. But with alcohol and drugs and stuff, there is very much science and evidence to support, you know, abstinence from the drug of choice, but the the sort of conflation of food with these other things, I think is the biggest problem with OA and 12-step programs like it because they don't understand that food is a different thing. Food doesn't actually fit that addiction model. Yes. And they don't leave space for harm reduction, which has also
1: been proven to be extremely helpful.
0: Yeah, because it's about complete abstinence and being black and white, not reducing your use of the harmful behaviors in a way that helps people not feel like they're a failure if they fall off the wagon, quote unquote. Talking a little more about the naturopathic piece of this and sort of like your interest in health and your interest in naturopathic medicine, because I know you went on to study that. How did that all sort of intertwine with your own recovery, like your career trajectory?
1: For me, using naturopathic principles, Was another form of dieting, but you know, it was disguised as lifestyle changes and disguised as treating the gut, which there is evidence, you know, of connections between our gut and our health. And when you've had an eating disorder and are predisposed to disordered eating, and you get diet recommendations when you haven't healed your relationship with food it's another diet. So before I came to school, I was strictly gluten free, dairy free and sugar free. And that lasted for a few months after I moved here to Portland, Oregon, from Northeast Ohio. I did lose some weight in that time period, because I was also very nervous about coming to medical school and being in a larger body and how that was going to be perceived I kind of had this attitude of like well as long as my food is good then you know what else else can anybody ask for me (laughs) so I had this idea that the way that I was eating was good and quote-unquote healthy and in reality I was definitely restricting It made food choices extremely hard, eating out very hard. Now, it was kind of reinforced when I came to school because the way that I was eating was the way that many people at my school ate. And after I was not able to maintain that way of eating anymore and headed into my first winter in the Pacific Northwest where I had never experienced (laughs) rain and no sun for so many days in a row, I definitely reverted back to binging and put on any of the weight that I had lost during that period of time that I was eating, all the freeze. And that started me back going to my school's clinic to see a naturopath that was well-known for helping people lose weight and seeking advice from an acupuncturist, or like getting acupuncture as a way to help me lose weight. That was the last time I did that. That was two years ago, like right around this time period. Also, by this time, I had decided not to do naturopathic medicine and acupuncture and Chinese herbs, because I was accepted to both programs. But I decided doing two programs was not for me. and. Chose one, and that ended up being acupuncture and Chinese herbs or herbalism. Yet, the school that I was at was predominantly naturopathic students, and I had many friends on the naturopathic side because that was, you know, the program that I had originally started out in. And it's a really small school, even though there's probably at least 700 students, it was a really small school. All of our classes were in one old elementary school. Some of them were at the research institute, but predominantly in that small building. So what I've now come to realize is that being at my school in that environment with like still also like, so also at this time, I was following a lot of body positive accounts, I had started following, you know, body positive fat people, I had started like, totally curating my feed and actually I feel like one of my friends suggested that I look into Isabel Fox and Duke because she sometimes talks about being in a way and so she was really my first person that I started like reading all of her stuff and then from there I just started finding people on Instagram and Facebook. I found Summer in and was in her Facebook group. And then there was Glitter and Lasers, who does fat fashion. And I don't know, I was just super intrigued. And I had no idea how to do it for myself. So I feel like my first year of school completely exacerbated my eating disorder. At the end of my first year, I felt extremely defeated because going to those doctors, the naturopathic doctor that I saw at my school clinic, I don't think I was asked if I had an eating disorder. I don't think I was ever asked that. She didn't call it the Whole30 or Paleo, but she told me all these foods to cut out. And essentially, it was very similar to the Whole30.
0: I think that comes from naturopathic medicine, right? Like, that, it's sort of a mainstreamization. I've been looking into the history of some of this stuff because I'm trying to understand how, like, wellness culture became the new guys of diet culture because that's something that I'm really interested in is, like, how did we get here to where wellness, quote unquote, is so tied up with, you know, the thin ideal and cutting out foods and a really disordered relationship with food. And yet people don't see it because it's, you know, held up as like, well, this isn't a diet. This is a lifestyle. This is about health. It's not about your size. Yeah, I think that Whole30 comes out of it's sort of like a mainstreamified version of what some naturopathic doctors do to try to like, you know, elimination diets basically to get people to see what they're supposedly sensitive to, which is like, there's a lot of problems with that. It's, you know, for number one, some of the tests that people are using are really bogus. It's very hard for people to be scientific about themselves. And when you look for something, when you, you are told that a particular kind of food might be problematic for you, it's more likely that you're going to find that, you know, like a placebo or a nocebo effect really is what it's called. So, yeah, I think it's it's all, you know, the sort of Whole30 paleo connection really comes out of naturopathic medicine. But it sounds like that was the sort of school of thought that this particular naturopathic doctor was in for you was like, let's cut out foods. Let's, you know, you're probably sensitive to food. I'm sure it was her reasoning. And so telling you to restrict and reduce these things, you know, instead of looking at, like you said, what's your relationship with food? What does the rest of your life look like? Truly holistic health. She was just looking at food.
1: Yeah, I mean, she did also end up suggesting a therapist for EMDR. And when I did come back to her and say, you know, I can't keep doing this. I want to try intuitive eating. She was okay with that. And she accepted that. And she's like, okay, go do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no idea how to do it. (laughs) And she didn't have any idea how to tell me to do it, I don't think, or else she
0: probably would have. Yeah, so you were just kind of left on your own, basically.
1: Yes. And then I did go to the person that she suggested that I go to for EMDR, but then her whole focus was on weight loss. And I didn't keep going to her after my second appointment because she was trying to get me to go to her weight loss group. And it was super disappointing, and I haven't done EMDR since.
0: Which, for anyone who doesn't know, EMDR is like a form of therapy that's really helpful for trauma. And the EM, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing because originally it was developed as like you're looking back and forth between two. Foci and looking back and forth like helps the two hemispheres of your brain bounce information back and forth, which is thought to be really important for processing trauma. And now they do it in different ways too. Like it's not just with eye movement, you can do it like with sound back and forth in different ears. You can do it with, I did it with like paddles that you're holding in your hands that vibrate alternating. It feels so good. And it's like, it, yeah, there's, I love EMDR, but I was not seeing someone who was trying to get me to lose weight, which would have been really terrible.
1: Right. Oh, and then I did end up stopping, I stopped going to that acupuncturist too, because even though I stopped focusing on losing weight, she couldn't stop. She never directly said anything to me about losing weight, but it was like these side comments that were just, they were microaggressions. And I did not want that in my healing space at all.
0: And it sounds like you, by that point, had a real sense of self-care and boundaries for yourself. Like you developed an awareness of what you needed and what you didn't need, which is huge. Yeah, it's true.
1: At the end of my first year, I was really desperate and I was actually back to binging pretty regularly. And our quarter ended in June. And then like three or four weeks later... I ended up at this retreat with Be Nourished called Reclaiming Body Trust, and I think I was just, I was completely primed and ready for everything that we talked about and all of the stuff that we did, and I haven't binged like that ever since that retreat a year and a half ago. It was amazing, totally amazing, and I got to meet... Two of my really, really good friends from that retreat. And we are, you know, we still talk and are close today. And it was amazing.
0: That sounds really life changing. It was. And it sounds like you were ready because you had already immersed yourself in, you know, body positive stuff and like Isabel Fox and Duke's work and thinking about, you know, and Summer Innan's work and thinking about intuitive eating and body acceptance and all that. So you've paved the way and we're sort of ready for, for that focus. Yep. And then how did it unfold for you with being in school for Chinese medicine with this recovery that was happening at the same time and realizing like you didn't want naturopaths telling you to cut out foods, you didn't want acupuncturists telling you to lose weight? How did that affect your schooling and your relationship with your program?
1: It really changed. It really, really opened up my eyes to how systemic diet culture is and how... Much healthcare is steeped in healthism and nutritionism. And that even seeps into Chinese medicine. I mean, granted, we're already starting at like doing a Chinese medicine program in the US, right? So there's a certain level of that, (laughs) but you know, not learning a medicine in the country that it originated from. The sort of Western
0: lens on it, maybe that was happening.
1: Yes. And people at my school will probably, if they listen to this, will be really upset if I don't say this. You know, our program is a classical Chinese medicine program. So it prides itself on being like the roots of Chinese medicine and not a Westernized traditional Chinese medicine lens. I don't necessarily think that it's worthwhile getting into the differences. (laughs) But a huge component of our program was studying the ancient texts of Chinese medicine, which was super important. And part of doing that helped me to understand and know that the root of Chinese medicine is to trust the body is to, like, live in alignment with the seasons as much as we can. Like, to have this connection between the earth and humanity and the universe. And all of this is, like, acupuncture using these little teeny tiny needles. Like, all of it is to help the body do what it does naturally. Like, it's just a facilitator. So, you know, even though it was extremely hard to see the healthism and the diet culture of my school and the professors in the program, I can't say all of them, but a lot of them, it was really amazing. It made me fall in love with the medicine that much more because it felt like natural medicine is all about trusting the body, and I had just, you know, gone to this retreat that was called Body Trust, and talking about how Body Trust is your birthright, and how we can come into the sense of trusting our body, and that is the basis of natural medicine. And somehow, diet culture somehow, <laughs> like this is a like, like this is a conundrum. It's not right. Like it's everywhere everywhere. And that includes naturopathic medicine. And that includes Chinese medicine. I learned about an acupuncture point for auricular therapy, which is points in the ear that are supposed to regulate your appetite. But it's called the weight loss point or however they phrased it. But it was the protocol for losing weight. And there are like, there's a lot of acupuncturists that will advertise that they do stuff for weight loss. Granted, you know, there were two really amazing acupuncturists that I really loved their work. I loved having them as teachers. I loved having them also as treating me that that was not their goal. And they knew that was not my goal. And they did not try to make it my goal. And it was super effective. And it has become a major source of my mental health care acupuncture.
0: So using it for like managing anxiety or depression or issues like that?
1: Yes. And I would say with one of my practitioners, he's also a teacher, is still a teacher at the school that I went to. He has done a lot of work with people with trauma. And so there were often times where if I was super triggered or having an extremely hard time about something specific, I could go to him and within like 24 hours, I wouldn't be triggered anymore. And it was also a way for me to be in my body without having to do yoga or Qigong. Because those became extremely unsafe for me to practice while I was at school. Because being quiet and being present in my body and the ways that I was often asked to be in Specifically in Qigong, because Qigong was a huge part of our curriculum. I can't technically explain it, but as soon as I would close my eyes and be in this room of people that I didn't feel safe with, I would have this like overwhelming sense of I don't, it's really hard to describe the feeling, but the best way to describe it is kind of like fear and being unsafe.
0: Right. That makes so much sense. I mean, being in a place with people you don't know, and already being someone who's gone through trauma, and then being asked to sort of like open up and go deep. I mean, I think that is very true with yoga as well. Like I know a lot of people say clients of mine have said, like, I can't do yoga. It's just too, it's too scary. I want to like run out of the room. And I think it really you have to be at a certain place of safety in your body already to get there or have like a really, really trauma-informed teacher in a space that is safe and conducive to it that can sort of walk you through it. But like, I think for most people, it's like you have to sort of do the deeper work on creating safety for yourself enough first that you can show up to those spaces and not be triggered because otherwise it's just going to make things worse.
1: Yeah. It took me a long time to listen to my body and be okay with that because I really, I wanted to be doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Your body had another idea. Yeah. (laughs) And you know how happy my body was when I actually let myself not do it anymore. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. You know, I think that the things that I was saying about Chinese medicine really also apply for naturopathic medicine. The true nature of naturopathic medicine is to rely on the body's innate ability to heal. And having all of these external directions and food recommendations, I feel it like goes against that because it's essentially telling people that we can't trust your body. And I don't want to discount that for some conditions, what we eat has an effect. I agree with this. And what are we doing for the people that have extremely disordered relationships with food? Are we recognizing that? Are we even attempting to deal with that before we hand them food recommendations? And weight loss is not effective. Pursuing weight loss has a more detrimental effect on your health than if you're not ever trying to pursue weight loss. And people aren't taught that in school. I mean, you might get lucky and you might have a teacher that talks about it for an hour out of your whole four years of education. You might get lucky and you might have one teacher who believes that and talks about it throughout their classes that they teach. But this is not what people are taught. medical school, whether it's Chinese medicine, naturopathic medicine, conventional medicine. It's just not what we are taught.
0: Yeah. Health at every size is not part of those curricula. No. I think it's so important to recognize that like weight bias and weight stigma are sort of baked into a lot of naturopathic and Chinese medicine programs, just like they're baked into Western medicine programs, Mm -hmm. because I think there's this... You know, these days, the sort of wellness halo that is over things like naturopathic medicine and Chinese medicine like, oh, these aren't Western medicine. This is a different thing. This is better. This is wellness. This is like looking at, you know, quote unquote holistic health. When in reality, it's not actually holistic because it's not looking at the whole person's mental, spiritual, physical, all of it health, emotional health, like it's not looking at those components. It's not looking at people's relationships with food or Mm -hmm. trauma history and trauma can very much affect how you are able to digest food. And same with, you know, having a disordered relationship with food, like, you know, looking just to food quickly. Like the first thing you do for digestive health or for any other conditions like allergies or eczema or, you know, things that often get blamed on food really misses that holistic aspect of the picture. That, like, no, stress actually has a huge impact on those things too. And your relationship with food, your relationship with your body, your responses to trauma also can greatly affect all of these things that often get blamed on food. And especially within that sort of wellness and naturopathic medicine lens, where it's like, let food be thy medicine you know like that is the sort of boiled down version of you know which is like you said it really misses the whole point that like your body knows what to do your body can be trusted like it's not about just food being your medicine you know it's maybe that's one tiny component of it but before you can even get to that you have to look at well is is it possible for food to be your medicine or is food actually going to is that cure actually going to be worse than the disease of, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to heal. Like yep. food can't be your medicine when food is your enemy. Yes. Absolutely.
1: I also kind of feel like it's necessary to say that like in general, I think that a lot of naturopaths are doing a better job than a lot of the conventional MDs out there because their education is more holistic and is more patient-centered. I think it's a lot of reason why people seek out NDs is because they take time with their patients and they do take time to listen. And there seems to be a bit more room for compassion with...
0: Naturopathic doctors, right? As opposed yeah. to medical doctors, yeah.
1: I'm feeling like some of my best friends are naturopathic doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is an ironically funny thing to say, but it gets so jumbled because diet culture is so ingrained. And so I kind of think that naturopathic doctors may have more willingness to listen about health at every size and intuitive eating and weight inclusive medicine because they have more of a foundation in wanting to trust the body to do what it's supposed to do. It's just a matter of educating people
0: and getting them on board. That's a great point because it's in diet culture, these ideas are not really widely available. And if you just go through the process of becoming a naturopathic doctor at a school that it's, very sort of steeped in diet culture and doesn't really get into the nuances of health at every size and intuitive eating, mm-hmm. you don't know. And so you kind of just go and, and do what you've learned because that's, I mean, that's true of any health professional. You know, I was right there in the same boat when I came out of my training as a dietitian. It was like, all right, do what I'm told, you know, do what I learned. And then sort of only over time did I start to question whether what I learned was actually helping people or, you know, even evidence-based. Yep, And I think that's a really great point too because I think I know a lot of naturopathic doctors and people who are in related fields as well who are interested in doing things differently than Western medicine because Western medicine does have this very sort of like black and white sort of approach to things in a lot of ways and doesn't make a lot of space or room because of like healthcare you know the whole all the complexities of the healthcare system like there's not a lot of time for patient centered care there's not a lot of time to really talk to people and listen and hear what's going on with them and empathize with them and people want that and i think you know the thing that i often say to especially to like anyone i know who's struggling with disordered eating and seeking out alternative forms of care because western medicine has failed them or they feel that that it has it's like yes I get it I totally understand that feeling I was there myself 10 or 15 years ago like I know how it is I also went down the rabbit hole of like cutting out gluten and cutting out other foods because I thought that that was the issue rather than looking at my relationship with food and nobody was there to really support me in looking at my relationship with food at the time like nobody knew nobody understood I wasn't being educated on you know, how that could be affecting my digestion and other aspects of my health. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of just like grasping around in the dark too. And I I grasped for, you know, in the early days of the gluten-free diet craze when it was just, you know, this thing that people were talking about on message boards and stuff, like in the early 2000s, I was like, okay, this seems, this seems interesting, this seems helpful and sort of went down the rabbit hole with it. And, you know, I did find through finding like physicians and healthcare providers who are sort of attuned to that stuff, I did find more empathy. I did find like some of the support that I was looking for. It just wasn't support in the sort of way that was actually going to ultimately help me heal myself and get rid of those restrictions. It was reinforcing those restrictions because the people providing that support didn't know any better. So I think, you know, if we can educate people on people who go into these alternative medicine spaces that like diet culture is there too. diet culture is deeply intertwined with, you know, all forms of sort of non-Western medicine, at least in the U.S. and the Western world, people can then start to look at that and see like how is diet culture showing up in my practice how how did diet culture show up in my training or is showing up in my training what can i do to push back on that and sort of provide an alternative that's truly holistic absolutely i'm curious for you like with your you know gluten-free dairy-free you know the the sort of <laughs> rabbit hole that you went down of cutting out different things how did you ultimately come to embrace a variety of foods again? And what did you learn in that process of going down that rabbit hole and having it exacerbate your disordered eating?
1: I really had to make space for the possibility that the way that I felt after I cut foods out, because generally I would feel better, but eventually that would end. And so then it became this like never-ending question of like, oh, do I have to cut something else out? What is the next thing? And what happened is that I made space for the possibility that maybe it was a psychosomatic thing. Maybe it was a placebo. And let's see what happens when I eat all of the food that I was cutting out. And maybe I will feel okay. Maybe it will be fine. And I just just also remembered that I went to a Chinese... He's also an acupuncturist, but he's also extremely well-known for his Chinese herbalism work. And he was one of my teachers, and I really admired him. And he actually has created a health at every size basis for his clinics that he has now and i was going to him for herbs and it was the first time that i really experienced until i had tried these other acupuncturists um it was the first time that i had experienced somebody was like going to honor that i wanted i didn't want to cut out foods and that I wanted to see how my body reacted and he put me on this formula. It was the first time that my digestion had ever been fine and it literally had nothing to do with my food. I mean, granted, I had also stopped binging. (laughs) So there was that, but like also, you know, my digestion wasn't that different than it had been like for the previous five or six years And so, to be able to be on this formula and to be able to see that I could eat these foods and not experience what I thought I was experiencing, you know, I'd never been diagnosed with celiac disorder or disease. I'd never actually had blood tests done for allergies. And so, it was just really incredible because I wasn't sure that I could trust, you know, what people were telling me that, like, really it's okay once you stop restricting these foods once you normalize the foods and once you like rehabituate yourself to let it like having all of the foods that you used to cut out for me it's been fine sure I notice my body feels different with different types of foods or like if I eat a ton of one thing because that's what I'm craving it'll be different but um you know, in general, I still don't cut any foods out. And I still sometimes struggle with like congestion or allergies and wonder, you know, I still have, I still have the thoughts like, should I cut milk out? (laughs) Should I cut dairy out? And then it freaks me out because I'm like, I can't cut anything out. because I still have such a strong reaction to restriction. And so then I'm like, all right, so I'm a little bit congested. My mental health and my physical health are just fine. I'm sometimes congested. Like, the world is not going to (laughs) end because I have a little bit of snot. And it would be completely different if I decided to cut out a whole food group. That's just not where I'm at. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. And that's okay. I totally feel you on that. I actually am in very much the same boat where it's like, you know, I have allergies, seasonal allergies, allergic to pollen. I'm also allergic to mold and dust and lots of stuff in the air. Throughout the year, I'll sort of have ups and downs of congestion and needing to take allergy meds or do something for the allergies and tried a bunch of different remedies and stuff that work okay. But some days I'm just kind of congested and it just kind of sucks. I really, at this point, would not dream of cutting out a specific food or food group or going down that rabbit hole because I've done that in the past and it didn't actually have a significant effect on my allergies and I can remember that and know that. But also, I love my life now. I love where I'm at in my mental health, in my management of PTSD and sort of the stuff that used to really curtail my enjoyment of life and ability to function in the world. Now I'm, you know, have a lot of that stuff Figured out, or not figured out, but I'm managing it, I'm working through it, and it's great. And I love the career I've created for myself, the relationship I have, my friendships all of this stuff is so great in my life these days. And I remember that back in the day when I was cutting out foods, my life was so much smaller and so much less fulfilling, and I didn't have the things that I have now that give me so much joy. And so why would I want to even risk going back there, even if now things are different and maybe it wouldn't affect me in the same way? I don't want to take that chance because, yeah, what's a little congestion in the context of a really great life? Like, I'll take a mucus, right. it's, it's fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I did that just before we talked because I was having a little congestion today, you know. And it's like, it's all good. Right. So I very much feel you on that. I think looking at the sort of overall context of your life I mean, I think the the tricky thing is when you're in that place of like, maybe a lot of things suck, you know, like maybe you're you're really triggered with trauma, you're using eating disorder behaviors to cope, and you're also experiencing a lot of, you know, digestive abnormalities because of it or allergies or, you know, other things going on in your health that are probably related to everything that's going on in your mental and physical health with the disordered eating and the trauma and stuff. I think Mm -hmm. it can be so tempting to be like... Well, who cares? Because like already I've got a a messed up relationship with food. So why not sort of, you know, try this and see if it helps. And it can't really make things a whole lot worse. But I think the problem is that it can. And I think even if you've got a lot going on in your life that you're not happy about, I think it still can, you know, drive you further into a depression or into a a difficult relationship with food or into a place that, you know, then you're going to have to work that much harder to get out of. Mm -hmm. I've been reading the book by Stephen Bratman, who coined the term orthorexia, Um, Health Food Junkies, which was written in 2000. It's it's got a lot of fat phobic stuff in it, too, actually. But it's also very smart because, you know, (laughs) it's like Western naturopathic physician, like uh, steeped in diet culture. But I think he's also super smart about the effects, the negative effects that cutting out foods and sort of going down the rabbit hole of food allergy diagnosis can have on people. And he said this amazing quote where he was like, you know, I eventually came to realize that like food allergy treatment is a dangerous drug, a dangerous medicine, just like, you know, a really strong pharmaceutical drug would be. And so, you know, this. Like that, it's really got a lot more harmful side effects than anyone gives it credit for, and that we need to take that seriously. And we need to think about it like it's, you know, I mean, he didn't use this analogy, but I think of it like chemotherapy or something, you know, it's like it can be life saving, but the side effects are intense. And so, only use it if it's really a situation that warrants it you know we're not using chemotherapy on colds like that's something that's reserved for a specific use and you know I think that's something that I've really like always felt that way but it was nice to hear him articulate it or read him articulate it in that particular way just being like yeah it's actually a really dangerous medicine y'all and we need to not like give it out like candy you know
1: That's a really incredible way to look at it.
0: I know. I was really floored to see that and this book was written in 2000 but I think the message about orthorexia is only still filtering out to the public it's like it sort of that book became popular among I think like naturopaths and people who were sort of in that space maybe or I think the sort of high profile cases of orthorexia in the last five years or so have started to draw more attention to it and the eating disorder world is also paying a lot more attention to it now. But orthorexia, the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, I mean, he makes the argument that the sort of uh, alternative medicine approaches to treatment of disease and prevention and stuff are a really easy gateway into orthorexia and that all of the approaches that like food allergy treatment is the most dangerous and is the most of a gateway into orthorexia. And other ones, there's other things too. like Right, like SIBO and... Leaky gut. Right. Um, Anything with healing the gut. Yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. You know, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is something that gets diagnosed so often these days and leaky gut and healing the gut and all of that stuff. Like, what would you say to someone who has been diagnosed with that stuff maybe or is worried that they have it and starting to go down the path of treating those things with food? If you
1: have a history of disordered eating or an eating disorder, that you proceed with much caution in how you decide to do your treatment and, you know, weigh things out because being on a highly restrictive FODMAPS diet before you're ready is not going to increase your health. Because, you know, I think that also restrictive diets end up getting prescribed for people with, like, IBS and Crohn's. And it's hard because you want to feel better and you don't want to be having this thing affect your life so much. And the symptoms can be really, really frustrating. And having a chronic illness is frustrating. And most people don't understand what it's like to live with a chronic illness like those. So proceed with caution. Highly consider doing the antibiotics that are prescribed for SIBO instead of the diet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Antibiotics have side effects too, but the diet has worse side effects, I would say.
1: For me as somebody who's in recovery, yes, that is what I would say. It is even hard for me to be around people that are doing those diets because I feel the anxiety and I feel the restriction Even though it's
0: not me. (laughs) Yeah, you pick up on that that's going on for people.
1: Yeah. And how much you have to adjust your life. Like, it completely affects the social aspects of your life. Like, being able to go to a birthday party or being able to go out to dinner with a friend. Like, I'm not saying that, like, people shouldn't adjust their food and consider how like we have to weigh like so is it worth doing this diet if I have no social life or is it worth that because places other than Portland you can't really go out to eat and get right. a paleo meal <laughs>
0: <laughs> this does happen in Portland but this is it's just the way it is same with like LA or San Francisco probably but you know probably the most part, there's not a lot of availability of that stuff
1: Yeah. And so long term, is it really realistic that you're going to stick to this? How much does that impact your life if like you keep going on and off and on and off? And it's certainly challenging. I would also highly recommend finding a health at every size, intuitive eating based, um, possibly even body trust based dietitian to help you answer all of those questions because really, our relationship with food is more important than the food we're putting in our body. And I know that that's also a radical idea. I'm so on board with that. that
0: I'm like fully co-signing that.
1: (laughs) It really is. And like, we don't want to believe that because we really want to have a lot of control over our health. I mean, personal responsibility is so like, it's the thing.
0: Western culture. It's what we're about. Yeah. And
1: so if you're gonna do a restrictive diet, but like, it's gonna make you a complete anxious, I hate even dealing with food because I can't eat anything mess. Is that worth it? Some people might have healed their relationship with food. Some like there are those people. There are people that have not dealt with disordered eating.
0: There are. They're probably not listening to this podcast, <laughs> but there are there are some out
1: there. Probably yeah. <laughs> and so maybe that's who does the really restrictive diet for their health condition.
0: Yeah, that like one percent or whatever it is of <laughs> the population. Those are such great words of wisdom. And I love what you said about your relationship with food being more important than what you actually eat, because that is so true. And like, it doesn't get enough airtime in our society. And, you know, the food as medicine approach is really popular in wellness culture, which is the new guys of diet culture. But we got to think holistically about these things and think about the, the true impact of cutting out foods on people's life because, I mean, if you're just concerned with physical health, you still need to be thinking about mental health because your mental health affects your physical health a lot, like in a large way. And then, you know, if you're thinking more holistically and you're not just concerned with physical health, which probably most of us are, you want real well-being. And, you know, that's like a 360 thing that includes your mental health as well, your social connections, like your life, your day-to-day experience of life and that can't be all about food that can't be all about preparing your next meal and thinking and planning ahead about where you're going to get this food that you need that has know this and know that and know the other thing and you know a million things that it's quote unquote free from because like then what are you left with
1: i think that one of the biggest things that gets missed in education in healthcare, unless you're somehow coming from a public health perspective being holistic about health and wellness we have to have a systemic lens it is like we said like it's not just personal responsibility i think like individual like health behaviors have maybe like a 25% impact on our health I think or it's maybe like 20%. less than that
0: yeah it's
1: so small yeah we have to have a systemic lens which means Stress impacts our health. Stress comes from all sorts of places. Like we can limit our stress with food if we have the ability to make those choices and to learn a different way. And weight stigma and discrimination against people in larger bodies has a huge impact on people's health. And not just mental health, but actual legitimate physical Health problems. And then we also have to account for racism and sexism and cis sexism and ableism. That's where our attention needs to be. We, how much good are we doing if we put all of our attention on individual responsibility when part of our individual responsibility is to our society as a whole and as a community? When, like people are afraid to open their mail or to go drive down the street, people of color living with that on a daily basis is more impactful to health, I think, than personal decisions. And if we're not addressing that, then we're doing a complete disservice to Absolutely. wellness. Absolutely, amen.
0: Fully co-signing all that too. <laughs> it's real like stigma discrimination the stress of racism the stress of weight stigma is something that affects people's physical health and so again if you're one of those people who's just focusing on physical health which i don't think many of us are but you know if that's if that's your jam we still have to be looking at systemic issues, too, because it's not just about mental health. And, of course, mental health plays a huge role in people's overall well-being. And if you're afraid to open your door, like you said, or you're afraid to get in the car and go somewhere because you might get pulled over and shot by a police officer for no reason, right? that actually affects your well-being as well. And. No amount of cutting out particular foods is going to address that. No amount of, you know, shaming people and telling them to lose weight because they're like a drain on our insurance system or whatever is going to actually affect that because people can't actually lose weight sustainably anyway. And that's a whole other story that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. But these systemic issues are very real and very impactful for people's health. And it goes so far beyond personal responsibility completely agree well I think that's a good note to end on that you know we can all go out and (laughs) and do our part for the collective and not feel like it's just our personal responsibility to take care of our health there's a lot of factors going on that influence health and I think if people are struggling with their relationships with food like it's totally okay to put aside all the other health related stuff and just focus on healing that and then you can go out and help other people heal that and all the other things that are affecting their health. And I think a big part of why I do what I do is I want people to heal their relationship with food so that they can go on and do lots of other cool shit, whether that's pursuing their creative passions and their life's uh-huh. work, you know, career wise and, Also, like social justice stuff, like how committed, how available are you going to be to show up for anti-racism work or anti-oppression work of any kind if you're calculating and crunching numbers and deprived and starved and, you know, using eating disorder behaviors, like you're not going to be there fully, you're not going to be able to even, you know, you might not even physically be able to go there. Or if you are there, you might not fully be present because you've got all this other stuff going on. So like heal that stuff work on, you know, I want to help people work on that stuff, so that they can be free of that and go on to do things that are really, really important in the world. I agree. Yes. Well, you're also doing that, I think, in your work because you're helping people show up for the things that really matter. And I would love to have you tell us about your work and where that is, where people can find you online and learn more about you.
1: I do a lot of things and you can find me on social media and my website, which my website is resilientfatgoddess.com. I love Instagram stories. (laughs) I also have a work Facebook page. You can also find me on my personal Facebook as well, but that's with Sarah Thompson. And then, what I do, like I said, I do a lot of things. A few of the big things are I am a virtual assistant. And
0: a great one. Um,
1: so, it's helped me very much. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, it's been very fun working for you. And. I am a consultant and trainer, so I do train and consult with healthcare providers on how to implement weight-inclusive medicine mm-hmm. and care practices. Everything from your intake paperwork to your office to uh, the things that you say to patients. Because if you're new to this, then there's there can be a lot of stuff to learn. And then I also love speaking and training um, people in groups about all of these things and I just added recovery coach to my website this past week which is really exciting. I am a certified body trust advocate uh, through Be Nourished and I am currently in a peer support training. I love the peer support model and being in recovery myself I really love connecting with people and helping people you know cut through all of the stuff that we've been told. I also think it's super important because I am fat and I am queer and there are not a lot of resources like that out there for us when it comes to recovery. So, I am excited to now
0: be offering that. Oh my god, that's so awesome. Congrats. I love it and We'll link to your website in the show notes so people can find you and your social media and stuff so they can find it easily. And thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. This is all amazing.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to talk with you.
0: So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Sarah Thompson for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast and you want to help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message, which is everyone. Please help us spread the word by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us up higher in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet messages that are in the health category and keep rising up above them. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in Apple Podcasts or your provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. Go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see all the ways you can subscribe to the podcast. that's christyharrison. dot com slash subscribe. If you're looking for some practical tips to get you started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 155. That's christyharrison.com slash 155. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. A big thanks to our editors and engineers at Podcast Fast Track and to my team at Food Psych Programs for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called A Wall and the track is called Food used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay psyched now, want food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over I'm your friend's out,